Good morning. Welcome to Alumni Hall. How many of you come to these lectures frequently? Very impressive. Now, of those, how many are going to the game? Less impressive. Okay. <laughs> now, this, is, this has become an institution. I told somebody earlier I had a, um, my counterpart from the University of Alabama came up to me a couple years ago and said, I heard you all have an academic lecture or seminar on game day. I said, yeah. He looked at me with this really quizzical look and says, does anybody come? <laughs> I said, yes. But, you know, Alabama's Alabama. And, <laughs> and fortunately, UVA is UVA. So anxiety. It's all part of our lives, but it doesn't need to be. Um, we all have phobias. Uh, what about public speaking? I don't know. Um, <laughs> We have deep-seated fears about something. For me, it might be beets. Uh, <laughs> but um, each of these seemingly irrational beliefs and behaviors are likely fueled by some sort of biased thinking, um, where we tend to interpret things in a, in a biased way, which causes us anxiety. Bethany Teachman, who is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the College of Arts and Sciences, as well as director of clinical training, uh, there is going to discuss how biased thinking uh, influences our, our uh, phobias and our anxieties and maybe talk about some ways that uh, we might combat that. So, Bethany? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity to come and share some of the work that our lab has been doing to try to help people think without fear. Our lab is the Program for Anxiety, Cognition, and Treatment, the PACT lab. And we're really interested in how people think differently when they're afraid, and how that matters for the onset of anxiety problems, their maintenance, and critically, if we can change those thinking patterns to help reduce their anxiety. And sometimes that involves scaring people a bit, so Halloween is big in our lab, hence the picture. <laughs> So today, I'm going to tell you about a problem that we see facing the field that we think is a very serious one. And that is that most people who are struggling with a mental illness are not getting the treatment that they need. And so I want to talk to you about one part of the solution to that problem that we're working on, which is trying to bring treatment to people directly. So rather than simply waiting in our clinics for people to come see us and receive treatment, we also want to think about bringing treatment to people directly. And I'm going to tell you about the work we've been doing with computer-based interpretation training to try to do that. I'll tell you about some of the progress we've made, the remaining challenges we're dealing with right now, and the next steps we're taking to try to address those challenges. So one of the nice things about studying fear and anxiety is that pretty much everyone that you meet can relate to what you do. So whether I am at a cocktail party, sitting on an airplane, or getting my hair cut, <laughs> people will tell me stories. The stories about their own experiences with anxiety, the stories about their loved ones' experiences with anxiety. And that's actually a wonderful part of my job. I'm really honored that people will share their experiences with me. And if I can be helpful, that feels fantastic. There is an aspect of this experience, though, that I routinely find very distressing. And that is because I am often told stories about people who are struggling for years with anxiety difficulties and not getting good help. 
And that breaks my heart. So I will commonly hear a story about somebody's Aunt Leora. Aunt Leora is in her early 60s. And about 10 years ago, she was sitting at a restaurant and she experienced her first panic attack. It was a sudden rise in physical sensations. Her heart started to race. She became short of breath. She felt dizzy. And she thought, what is happening to me? Am I going to have a heart attack right now? She left the restaurant and went straight to the emergency room to get checked out. Well, it turned out it was a panic attack, not a heart attack. But since that time, Leora's not going to any restaurants. And Leora's life is getting smaller and smaller. She used to love to go to concerts. She used to love to go to movies with her friends. But she's afraid to go to those places now because she fears that she'll have another panic attack and it would be hard to escape. So she now has what we call panic disorder and agoraphobia. Now, here's the really tough part. She's really embarrassed about it. And so she's not telling a lot of people about it. About five years ago, she got up the courage to tell her primary care physician what was going on. And he gave her a prescription for a very heavy sedative. But the side effects for that were so extreme that she quickly stopped them. And now she's not getting any care and is spending more and more of her time at home. And those kind of stories really break my heart. Or I'll hear a story about somebody's best friend, Rick. Rick's a really nice guy, he's really talented, and he had a great career developing in marketing. The tricky part is Rick is really afraid of public speaking. So most of us get a little nervous when we're standing up here. That's pretty normal. But for Rick, it's really extreme. It's so extreme that he just didn't do presentations that were required of him for his job. And so first, he was passed over for a promotion because he wasn't able or willing to take those opportunities to express what he knew, to present his best work. But as time went on, this became more and more of a problem in his job. And eventually, Rick was fired and lost his job. Now, Rick lives in a rural, small town. It's pretty hard for Rick to find a provider who's trained in the best therapies to help these kinds of problems. Moreover, Rick now doesn't have a lot of financial resources to try to pay for these therapies. And what underlies these kinds of stories, so Rick, who has social anxiety disorder because he fears negative evaluation from other people, and Leora, who has panic disorder and agoraphobia, is that we are not getting good treatments to the people who need them. And by good treatments, I mean treatments that have good research to support to suggest that they are going to be effective in helping this problem. Well, you may be thinking, ah, I don't know a Leora, I don't know a Rick. How common is this really? Is this really that big a deal? Unfortunately, it is. These problems are highly, highly prevalent. So looking at mental illness in general, in the United States, approximately 50% of the population is projected to meet criteria for some kind of a mental illness diagnosis in their lifetime. Specific to anxiety disorders, about 18 to 36% of the population will have an anxiety disorder at some point in their lifetime. That means they're having enough impairment as a result of the anxiety that it's really interfering with their functioning and getting in the way of them meeting their full potential. To put this in perspective, look around the room. It means one in four or five people in this room is going to experience a clinically significant anxiety disorder at some point in their lifetime. And it's not a small thing, unfortunately, to have an anxiety disorder. They come with enormous personal and financial costs. So at a personal level, 
people are less likely to meet their full academic potential, less likely to be as successful occupationally, it hurts their relationships, reduces their quality of life, and we even see increases in suicidal thinking with some of these disorders. In addition to these personal costs, there are extreme financial costs. So over $190 billion goes to just the lost earnings annually due to major mental illnesses. To put this in perspective, that is the national annual GDP of the entire country of New Zealand. Yeah, we're not talking small numbers here. So specific to anxiety disorders, about $42 billion is spent in just the United States each year on healthcare expenditures for anxiety. So you would think if these problems are so common, so prevalent, they have such enormous personal and financial costs, you would think everybody out there would be getting good treatments for them. It would make sense. But unfortunately, that's not the case. In fact, less than one in three people in the United States who is suffering with a mental illness is actually receiving mental health treatment. Specific to anxiety, oh sorry, and the rates are even lower among minority populations. So only 13% of African Americans and 11% of Hispanic Americans are getting the mental health treatment that they need. Specific to anxiety disorders, again, we're around that one-third number that's receiving treatment. But here's the catch. Only 13% are getting what we would define as minimally adequate treatment. And what that means is that they are getting an adequate dose of a treatment that is expected to be effective for their problems. And part of the reason it breaks my heart when I hear these stories and I see these numbers is we know a lot about what can help with solving anxiety difficulties. So in particular, cognitive behavioral therapies, you may have heard them referred to as CBT, for anxiety are kind of the gold standard treatment. And we have lots of support for their effectiveness. The basic idea is a really simple one. It's that thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all closely linked. And so if we change one, it'll make a difference on another point in the triangle. So in these therapies, we help people to reduce their negative thinking, to think in a way that's less focused towards threat, less catastrophic. And we help people to change their behaviors, to re-enter those situations that they've been avoiding because of their fears. So now, Rick can go and make the presentations. Leora can go back and see concerts. And we allow people to learn that they can tolerate anxiety. It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. And when they learn that they can tolerate anxiety, crazy thing happens. Anxiety goes away. So the trick is to change your thought patterns and reduce the avoidance behaviors, and then that will allow the anxiety to calm down. And these treatments are highly effective. So cognitive behavioral therapies work for many, many different anxiety and mood problem areas. In fact, if we look at the results, for example, for treating panic disorder, like Leora has, about 75% of people who go through this treatment will be free of panic attacks at the end of the treatment. And the numbers are even higher if we look at how many people are going to have an improvement in their symptoms. And cognitive behavioral therapies are not the only option. We have research support for certain kinds of medication, often in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy, for mindfulness approaches, interpersonal therapy. So there's more than one option for people who want to seek help. The key that I've underlined here is try interventions with good research support. And the URL that's up here has a list of which research prob or, or sorry, which treatments can help different problem areas. 
The reason I'm so emphasizing this part is unfortunately in our field, we have a history of not always being great at this. So you can't count on the fact that when you go to a provider, you're going to necessarily get the treatment that has the best research support. You need to ask for it. Because in our field, we even have a history at times of doing treatments that can actually do harm at times. That's what we call iatrogenic effects. That's not common, but I want to make sure that people are getting the best treatments that are out there. So we know a lot about what can help. We have hundreds of studies at this point showing the effectiveness of these kinds of therapies. So you need to ask yourself, why aren't people getting the help that they need? Right? If we know what can help, what's getting in the way? It turns out this is a kind of complicated problem. So there's a bunch of issues that make it challenging. One is that these treatments can be expensive, right? So for somebody like Rick, who's lost his job and doesn't have good health insurance, that can be a real challenge. Logistics can be difficult. Some of these treatments can take a fair bit of time. In addition, for somebody like Leora, who's not leaving her house a whole lot because she's afraid of panic attacks, going to treatment can be really, really difficult. And unfortunately, there still is stigma. There's reasons to think that's getting better, but some people are still feel very ashamed and embarrassed that they're seeking treatment. And that's something critical that we have to change. Moreover, there can be limited access to providers. There can be long wait lists in order to get treatment, or lack of access to evidence-based treatments, especially for somebody like Rick, who may be living in a small town that doesn't have a lot of providers. You add to all of these factors that the hallmarks of anxiety disorders are fear and avoidance, and it becomes very difficult for people to seek care. As a result, it's led people like Alan Kazin and Stacey Blaze to say that to reduce the burden of mental illness, we need to consider alternate delivery models for mental health services. So not only waiting in our clinics for people to come to us, but also thinking about other ways of delivering treatments. Now I want to put in a disclaimer and be really clear. I am a therapist. I love doing therapy. I practice these treatments with my clients. I train graduate students to be therapists. So doing therapy in the clinic is a really important part of what we do. What I want to argue is that it shouldn't be the only thing that we offer. We have to expand our toolbox, because when you look at those numbers of how prevalent these problems are, we really need to think about other ways of getting help to people. And so I want to talk about this idea of part of the solution being to bring treatment to people directly. And I'm going to talk to you about computer-based interventions. Now, at first, this may seem like a pretty crazy idea. Because everything you've ever seen on TV or movies about what happens in therapy usually involves somebody lying on a couch. Not usually how it actually works, but nonetheless, <laughs> how they like to portray it. And they'll show a deep relationship between the therapist and the client. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it turns out we can think about other ways of doing this. And as you start to recognize some of the other things you do on a computer, getting mental health care stops seeming so crazy. So, we watch YouTube videos to learn how to fix our house. It's kind of crazy if you think about that. 20 years ago, nobody would have ever thought about doing that. We take entire courses where we never meet the professor or the teacher. Moreover, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I put down a good bit of money that many of you met your spouse online. So we do all kinds of things on computers now that we didn't do before. And so I want to suggest that we can also do computer-based mental health care. Part of why 
this possibility is exciting to me is that doing care in this way can help to address a lot of these barriers that I've pointed out, right? So the cost can be really low. So once we develop these programs, sending it for one person to complete versus one million people doesn't change a whole lot from a cost standpoint. Logistically, Leora doesn't have to leave her house. She can do this from the privacy of her own home. That helps with the logistics, it helps with the stigma, it helps Rick, who doesn't have access to good providers in his area. And it can help people to overcome the fear and avoidance so that they can start to live fuller lives. So the computer-based interventions can really help to diminish these barriers. So we're still at early stages of this work, so I don't want to pretend that this is a panacea and we've solved all the problems. But when you look at the research that's been done so far, it is really encouraging. So we see large effects for many internet-based cognitive behavioral therapies, particularly for anxiety disorder, and particularly for the problem areas I started with, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder. And in fact, when you look at those results, the results that people achieve doing these treatments online are often equal to what they can achieve for in-person therapy. At the same time, we still have some remaining challenges. So when you look at some of these studies, you'll see that there's high dropout rates in some cases. Some of them can still be time consuming, so they can take a lot, a lot of sessions and a fair bit of time. Moreover, some of these computer-based interventions, the results suggest that people do better when there's still some therapist input. So either that could be the therapist making some phone calls, personalized emails, maybe a session and the rest online. There's lots of different models that people are testing. And that's great. I want to encourage people to seek out these options. And that URL I put up there, the Beacon URL, that's a really lovely website that just gives descriptions of which online interventions have good research support so that you can find out options. Gives you intervention information about their costs, all kinds of things. Moreover, doing those kinds of treatments can often require people to kind of open up about the difficulties that they're experiencing and be ready and willing to talk about the thoughts that they're having. And that's great but not everybody is ready and willing to do that. So if anybody has a 13-year-old who's struggling with social anxiety, you probably know well that that person is not super excited to come to a therapist and talk all about their personal thoughts and feelings. So we want to think about other options. Again, this is great. We want to add to our toolbox. So to do that, we want to think about building from what we know. What does the research tell us is likely to be effective? Well, we know that interpretation is key. So how we think about a situation, how we make sense of it, really has a dramatic effect on our feelings, our behaviors, how we relate to other people, how we function. And we can bring this to light with a really simple example, because we experience this all day long without even realizing it. I want to do a little thought experiment with you. I want you to imagine that it is 3 o'clock in the morning. You're lying in bed, hopefully fast asleep at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's really quiet until all of a sudden you hear a crash from down in the kitchen. Now it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you've just heard a crash in the kitchen. What's going through your mind? Well, if you're like most people, you're thinking a burglar's broken in. And if you think a burglar's broken into your house, what are you feeling? Yeah, you're terrified. <laughs> Absolutely. It makes perfect sense if you think a burglar's broken in. And what are you going to do? Maybe call 911. 
had people tell me they'll grab a baseball bat. My favorite I heard last week was someone who said, I'm sending my boyfriend down. <laughs> so all of those reactions make good sense when you have the thought that a burglar has broken in. But I'm going to make a small little change here. Exactly the same situation. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. You're lying in bed fast asleep. But did I mention you got the cutest little kitten last week? I know. She's so sweet and so cute, but she's into everything. So now what's likely going through your mind? You're probably thinking, now oh, the cat knocked something over. Are you going to feel terrified in this situation? You're going to be mad. There's not a whole lot of happy feelings at 3 o'clock in the morning when something crashes. But I really hope you're not calling 911. And I really, really hope you're not getting the baseball bat. So it's a very different reaction because of how you change your thoughts about what that sound meant. And that shows this very simple idea that the way you think about a situation can dramatically change your feelings and your behavior and a whole cascade of reactions that follows. So we can take this simple idea and apply it to the problems that folks like Leora and Rick are dealing with. So Rick has a fear of public speaking. So when he notices that people are looking at him, he makes a catastrophic interpretation. He thinks, they're staring at me because they think I'm an idiot right now. And that's a horrible feeling to have, a horrible thought to have. And that fear of negative evaluation from other people is what is central to having social anxiety disorder. And it leads to all kinds of negative consequences. So for people like Rick, they see social threat everywhere. So instead of noticing the 250 faces that are generally smiling, they're going to notice the one face over there that's looking kind of critical and really focus on that. That's my husband, so I can point at him. <laughs> and so they see social threat all over the place as a result. And in addition, that leads them to underestimate the social performance. So if I'm standing up here and the whole time I'm thinking, oh god, they think I'm an idiot, they think I'm an idiot, I'm not going to think I'm doing very well in doing this talk. And what does that mean for the next time I'm asked to give a talk? No way. If I stood here the whole time and thought I was an idiot. And that's what's happened for Rick. But how different would it be if when Rick stood up to give a talk and he noticed that people were looking at him, instead he thought, oh, they think this talk is kind of interesting. Same thing. He's standing up giving a talk. He may even feel anxious in both situations. It's normal to feel nervous when you give a talk. But that change in how you think about it leads to a totally different reaction. Now, Rick is not going to skip giving those talks at work. And I would argue that Rick would probably never have lost his job in the first place. Same kind of situation for Leora. So all of us experience changes in our bodily sensations. It's a pretty normal thing to have happen. People with panic disorder pay a lot of attention to those. And critically, they think that they're signs of something terrible. So when Leora notices that her heart is racing a little bit, she's likely to think something terrible, like I'm having a heart attack. And we know that this tendency to make catastrophic misinterpretations of bodily sensations happens all the time for people who are vulnerable to panic. So our lab, along with many others, has shown that people who are diagnosed with panic disorder will make all kinds of catastrophic misinterpretations in a really frequent way with very minor triggers. Moreover, even people who just have a vulnerability to panic, who don't even have the disorder yet, will show this pattern. And we've done studies over treatment, like with cognitive behavioral therapies, where we show that we can change these interpretations. So you're not doomed to think in this way. We can shift this thinking style. And moreover, we've shown that the extent that we change these interpretations for someone over the course of treatment, 
that happens in advance and predicts how much their symptoms go down over the course of treatment. So how much we change their thinking style is going to predict how well they do in therapy. And that has led people to suggest that a change in what people believe and the way that they process information is the primary mechanism of change. In other words, if we can get Leora to think, oh, my heart's probably just going a little faster because I just ran down the hall, it's likely to have far less pernicious effects. And she's going to still be able to go to concerts, go to movies, all those kinds of things. So the question we've been trying to ask lately is, can we change interpretations directly without traditional therapy? Can we do it with no therapist input, just doing it on a computer to try to adjust some of those logistical barriers and remaining challenges that I talked about? And we do this through an approach called cognitive bias modification. It's just a fancy way of saying changing skewed ways of thinking. So we know that people who are anxious tend to have patterns in their thinking that get them into trouble, right? Rick noticing the one face that wasn't smiling is a selective attention to a threat cue. That tendency for Leora to think, oh, that racing heart is a sign of a catastrophic interpretation. These are habits of thinking that people have. And we're going to focus in particular on trying to change the habit of threat interpretations. So I'm going to show you some examples of what we've been doing with computer-based interpretation training and talk about where we're at so far with this work. So what we want to do is try to train Leora to interpret ambiguous situations in a new way. Now let me explain why I'm suggesting to focus on ambiguity. If something is objectively really, really positive, pretty much everyone's going to interpret it in a positive way. Similarly, if something is objectively really, really negative, whether you have an anxiety disorder or not, you're likely to make a negative interpretation. Moreover, that's probably adaptive. If something's really terrible, you should think it's terrible. That makes perfect sense. That's healthy. It's not about just thinking positively all the time. The issue is that the majority of our experience is actually in a gray zone, where it's a little bit ambiguous how you should make sense of that situation. How bad is it? How good is it? And that's where the action is, because that's where people's habitual thinking styles come into play, and they assign one kind of interpretation or another. So the way that we address this is we give people a whole lot of practice in thinking in a new way. And we do it very simply. So we'll present a brief scenario to people, and there's a little ambiguity in it. So this would be an example when we're working with somebody like Leora. You're jogging. Your heart starts to beat quickly. This is, and now it's open. It's clear the person's jogging. It's clear that their heart is even racing rapidly. So we know that symptom is there. The question is, how do you interpret it? How do you make sense of having your heart beat quickly? Well, if you're Leora, your habitual style is to make a negative interpretation, right? So you say, this is dangerous that my heart is beating quickly. But what if instead I make just one small, tiny tweak? Everything else is the same about this scenario, but I change the last word. Because it's perfectly reasonable to think that a racing heart is invigorating. You're just working hard. You're having a good run. And now we've assigned a positive interpretation to it. Very small change, just one word, but it completely shifts the emotional meaning that's assigned to this situation. This approach was developed by Andrew Matthews, and we've modified it since to try to help different anxious populations. When we actually present it to somebody like Leora, we present them with a word fragment. So rather than just giving the word so that they're passively reading it, they're presented with a word fragment and they have to resolve it. Now it's not hard to figure out that you should add a G to make dangerous or you should add a V to make invigorating, 
But the reason we do that is that it forces the person to actively generate the emotional meaning that we're trying to give them practice doing on. So we think that's going to help them think about it in a deeper way. So if they're in the positive training condition, they do a whole lot of scenarios like this one where they end stories with words like invigorating that attach a, a positive benign meaning to the situation. We reinforce that meaning with a comprehension question. For this example, it would be, is your rapid heartbeat healthy? Now notice, the answer to this question varies depending on what training condition you're in. So if we were trying to train somebody to think negatively, they'd say, it is not healthy, it's dangerous. On the other hand, if you're in a positive training condition, which is most of what we do, then people are going to say it's invigorating and say that, in fact, your rapid heartbeat is healthy. So we've taken this basic approach of giving people lots and lots of practice with these brief stories to give them a new habit, a new thinking style. And what we find is across lots of different anxious populations, we've been able to shift their thinking. So we find that for people with spider phobia, arachnophobia, people who have anxiety sensitivity, which is a well-established vulnerability for panic disorder, people who have obsessional thinking in the context of obsessive compulsive disorder, people of social anxiety, uh, tweens, so young folks who have social anxiety disorders come in with their parents who have these thinking difficulties, people with contamination fears, so they don't want to go anywhere near that toilet. So for all of these different problem areas, we've shown that with this kind of just computer-based practice, with no interaction with a therapist, we can shift their thinking style so that when they are faced with novel situations, they think they're not going to turn out quite so badly. Let me give you one ex example of this in a little depth so you can see what it actually looks like. <laughs> so if you have height phobia, known as acrophobia, you don't like this picture so much. <laughs> So this was a study with a whole lot of folks who don't like this picture so much. And it was led by my former graduate student, Sherry Steinman. And she did a really nice study where she wanted to compare interpretation training to exposure therapy. Now, exposure therapy is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that it helps a person get used to situations that they've been avoiding so they find out that the fear that they experience comes down on its own. It is the gold standard treatment for treating these kinds of problem areas, all different kinds of phobias. And I want to encourage people to seek it out if they're struggling with a phobia. It works beautifully. So I do this therapy. I train my students to do it. So this is not about replacing all of these therapies. It's about adding to our toolbox. The reason we need to add to our toolbox is that treatments like exposure therapy work really, really well. But boy, are they a tough sell. I see somebody shaking their head and the other like, no way. Uh, so that's the problem. A lot of people, when they hear what these treatments involve, won't go anywhere near them. So they either won't start therapy or they drop out of therapy, which is really unfortunate because the experience of actually doing these therapies is generally a very positive one for people. It's very empowering, and they work beautifully. But they are a tough sell. So we want to have other options that we can offer people. So we brought in 110 people who are all high in height fear, and we assigned them to one of four treatment conditions. Now, every treatment condition was short. It was only two one-and-a-half-hour sessions. So remember I told you one of our interests is seeing about can we get treatments to people that are really feasible for them to do. We all have busy lives. Is there a way we can do this in a fairly short, efficient way? So people either did an interpretation training only condition where they did a bunch of those computer tasks that I'll show you in a second. They did an exposure only condition 
or they did a combo condition where half the time was spent on interpretation training, half the time was spent on exposure, or they did a control condition. So this is what it looked like if you were in the interpretation training condition. So people saw a whole lot of ambiguous scenarios that were tied to heights that would end with a word fragment they had to complete. So you're standing on the edge of a balcony of a 10-story building. You realize the railings are shorter than they are on most balconies. The chances of you falling are still, and then how do you finish it? Right, so it's easy, but you gotta do the work to finish it yourself. So notice here, it's not ambiguous whether or not the person is on a height. It's not even ambiguous whether or not they're nervous about being on a height. What's ambiguous is whether they decide that situation is threatening, threatening or not. What's ambiguous is whether or not they think they can cope with that situation. And that's the, those are the pieces that we're trying to change. So when you force people to finish this with the idea that the chances of falling are minimal, they're attaching a benign interpretation. We reinforce that with a comprehension question. Are you likely to fall off the balcony? Clearly in this case, the answer would be no. And we have them do a whole bunch of scenarios like this. We thought people would go a little crazy doing an hour and a half of these scenarios, so we mixed it up with another kind of interpretation training as well that I'm not going to get into into the interest of time. But similar idea. Those in the exposure therapy had a very different experience. So they worked with trained graduate level therapists and did two sessions of exposures. And that involved going all around campus to various heights. You should recognize a lot of these spots on campus here. And helping people to get used to the height situations that have been very scary for them. So they enter those situations, and instead of escaping, like Leora did or like Rick did, they stay in the situation and find out that their anxiety will actually come down on its own, and nothing terrible ends up happening. I put exposures in quotes here, because I think our field made a huge mistake calling it that. Who wants to do something called an exposure? <laughs> yeah, it makes it sound so awful. But that's actually not really what happens. The client chooses what they do. So we don't force people to do horrible things. People are not dragged, kicking and screaming places. People actually have a whole lot of control here. And they are choosing what they're going to do. So people in the exposure therapy are working directly with the therapist. People in the combo condition are doing half the time of this, half the time interpretation training. And then we had our control condition. Now this control condition is a bunch of scenarios on the computer. They look identical on the surface to what you saw for the interpretation training. There are a few sentences and they end with a word fragment followed by a question, but they're kind of boring. <laughs> so they don't really have anything to do with fear. So they're missing the critical ingredients. They're not about resolving that emotional ambiguity. Some were related to heights, just so that it would seem a little bit more credible, but many were just like the one I have up here. You're reading one night when you come across a word that you do not know. You decide to look up the word. You go get your dictionary. Do you look up a definition? Not so exciting, and we don't expect that to do a whole lot to changing your threat interpretations. So let me tell you what we expected here. We had three kind of active conditions and one control condition. We thought, first and foremost, that all three active conditions would lead to improvement on all of the different outcome measures. We had about nine or ten different outcome measures that we tested. Moreover, we had a second hypothesis that there would be what we were calling a therapeutic synergy. We thought the group that had the combo would do best because we know that exposure therapy works really well and we were hoping that adding this interpretation training would kind of really add to those effects. The idea being that if you learned how to think about a situation in a less threatening way, you'd do even more in the exposures. And similarly, if you had these positive experiences in exposures of learning that, hey, I was able to handle that, 
you would see those situations as less threatening. So let me show you what actually happened. Remember I emphasized those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So in the interest of time, I've just picked our three top outcomes that we were interested in that reflect thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So this shows the change in anxious thoughts. It's too bad it's cut off the axis there. But that was a height interpretation questionnaire. And higher numbers on here indicate more threatening thoughts. So more likely thinking that I'm going to fall and I'm going to have a terrible injury if I'm on a height and I can't handle that situation. So pre is just before treatment starts, and post is after the two sessions. And here's what we see. We have our four groups. The only one you really need to notice is the gray control, because the three active treatments all look identical. So what you see is that before treatment, over here, not a whole lot of different and a lot of high threatening interpretations. But after treatment, all three active groups have dropped dramatically and similarly to each other and are very different now from the control group in gray. Oops, it's not showing up. There we go. So we were partly right and partly wrong. We did see that these active treatments were effective, but we didn't see therapeutic synergy. So it wasn't that the combo did better than the other ones. That actually was kind of exciting to us because what it suggests is that just doing the computer training, just doing that interpretation training that had no therapist involvement whatsoever did just as well as our gold standard exposure therapy. And that's exciting because it says we have more than one option that we can offer people so people can figure out what's going to be the right fit for them. So that's what we saw for change in anxious thoughts. Pretty similar for our change in anxious feelings. So the acrophobia questionnaire is kind of the gold standard outcome measure for treating height phobias. This was the anxiety subscale. And you see a very similar pattern. Groups are kind of similar at the beginning. All three of our active training groups come down and are doing way better on their anxiety symptoms. And the control group isn't changing a whole lot and doesn't look as good as the other ones. Same thing when we look at our change in anxious behavior. So this is the avoidance subscale of that same measure. So how much are people avoiding going to heights? Again, similar pattern that we see. Our three active groups are doing really well. And whether you do the interpretation training or the exposure therapy, both approaches can give you really nice benefits. So what have I told you so far? I've told you that interpretation biases are strongly associated with anxiety and that we can change them over the course of treatment. Moreover, I've shown you with the interpretation training, that form of cognitive bias modification, that there's a causal link, that changing interpretations can reduce anxiety and avoidance. And that may help us overcome some of the barriers to disseminating care. And that's why we're excited about these findings. But my talk's not quite done yet. We still have a long ways to go to fully help Leora and Rick. So all these studies I told you about are published in nice journals, and we did change the thinking styles, as I told you. But we have somewhat inconsistent effects of our interpretation change transferring to symptom reduction. So what we kind of have going on here is a two out of three kind of thing. We usually can change two measures of emotions or symptoms, but not a third. And we want to do even better. We want to change all three. So we're trying to figure out how can we make these intervention stronger? How can we make them more reliable? And to do that, we've got to figure out exactly how they work, because that can tell us why they sometimes fail as well. So I put the picture of the toilet up there again, because we had another study that I didn't tell you about that was with contamination for fearful people. So the toilet is appropriate. But the results also are nicely captured by the picture of a toilet. It just didn't work at all. So 
And that happens sometimes. And that's not bad. That's what science is about, is learning from these different studies. But we need to figure out how to make our results even stronger and more reliable. And so I want to tell you about what we're doing to try to do that now. We think we have to move from the lab to the real world. So most of these studies that I've showed you have been people coming in to see us in the lab and doing these programs. But we want bigger samples so we can really find out for whom does this work best, under what conditions, which variations of the program are going to be most effective. And we want to test the dissemination potential. So remember, the reason we're doing this in the first place, the reason we were excited about this, is because we want to help get treatments to the people who need them, not just wait for people to come to us. So let me close by showing you a couple of examples of what we're working on now to try to do that. So this is the what's next. Uh, one study that we have literally just launched is an online training program to try to train healthy thinking about the future. Um, we're thankful for a grant from the Templeton Foundation to do this. Notice that a lot of the training programs I told you about were training how people thought about kind of past or current situations. So what did it mean that your heart was beating rapidly? How did you think about that prior situation? And that's good, and it's clearly working for us. But if you think about Leora and Rick, Leora is not going out because of what she's afraid would happen at the restaurant in the future. Rick is not doing the presentations at work because he's afraid of what's going to happen in the future when he does that. A lot of anxiety is about what if. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? What if this happens? That's very future-focused thinking. So we think we need to try to shift these programs and add in trying to train how people think about future situations. So we're experimenting with that right now. We're also moving online to try to try lots of different variations. So um, some of my research assistants, I think, are in the audience. And we gave them a challenge last year. We said, take our basic training paradigm. And everybody can change one thing I want you to go back to the research literature and think about one thing that you think would make this stronger. And now we're trying 16 different variations online to see which is going to be the most effective. This is what we call a proof of principle study. They're just doing one session of training. So we don't think this is going to last for the effects, but it'll tell us what to test in our next big online study. And that's what we're moving to now. So we have been getting ready to launch an online interpretation training site. Because our goal is to take the research lab from outside of the UVA buildings and put it online and get it to lots and lots of people, not just the folks who are living in Charlottesville. So uh, we have a website that we've run for the last few years called Project Implicit Mental Health. And that's a public website where people can go and try out different cognitive bias measures associated with lots of different types of mental illness. So we've been fortunate we get a lot of traffic at the site. So we've had over 330,000 tasks completed at this site. And I want to encourage you to go check it out. The URL is implicitmentalhealth.com. And you could do measures of implicit mental health associations tied to lots of different topic areas. Depression, anxiety, alcohol, eating concerns, stigma of mental illness, self-esteem, lots of different tasks that you can try up there. And so far, this has been a site that offers assessments. But our next step is now to launch an interpretation training intervention arm to the site so that people who score highly on the measures of anxiety symptoms can then be invited to participate in studies to try to train their interpretations. And so we're launching Mind Trails in the next month or so. And it's called Mind Trails because the whole point of all this work is to show that the mind can think flexibly. It can go down different trails. There's not just one path that the mind can take in how it thinks about situations. 
So with a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health, we've created a web-based research infrastructure to keep testing these interpretation training programs. And I hope that I'll have a chance to come back and tell you a little bit about this work. But for now, as you think about what to tell your Aunt Leora and your best friend Rick, who is struggling with anxiety difficulties, you want to point out to them that there may be other ways they can think about the situation. To think flexibly, to realize that there may be another option besides thinking that you're having a heart attack, besides thinking that they think that I'm an idiot. To ask yourself, is there another way I can make sense of the situation? And you want to encourage Leora and Rick to reduce their avoidance behavior, because that is kind of the kiss of death with anxiety. That's what makes people's world smaller. So if Rick can keep doing the presentations even though he feels anxious, if Leora can start going out to, dinner for, out to dinner again, even if it makes her nervous, what she will find is that if she's willing to tolerate that bit of anxiety, it'll go down on its own. So the other thing I hope that you will tell Leora and Rick, the message that I hope I've conveyed today, is you want to encourage people to seek care with good research support. It's really, really important that people are seeking the treatments that are most likely to be effective. Now, often that means trying to find a good therapist in their area, but I hope that soon it'll mean that we can bring the treatments to them directly. So I want to thank our funding agencies who supported this work, um, some of my research assistants and graduate team who make doing this work so much fun. I really want to thank all the Leoras and Ricks who participate in our study. We so appreciate their willingness to tell us their stories and their courage in being willing to try to face the things that scare them the most. And I want to thank you guys for coming on this lovely morning and spending an hour with me and enjoy the game this afternoon. got time for a couple questions. I love it, all of it. My one concern is, in this audience, your vocabulary is perfectly appropriate. But if you're going to take this out to the people who don't have the health care, words like invigorating are going to be scary. They're going to think they're not intelligent enough to finish the program. What are you doing to accommodate those folks? No, it's an excellent question. So um, for those who might not have been able to hear, the question is, are some of the words that we're using, some of the language that we're using, is it going to be intimidating to some people and make them feel that they're not going to be successful at doing that? So I think that's a critical question. So when we did this with kids, we did a study that had 11-year-olds who had social anxiety disorder in it. We did a whole bunch of focus groups and testing first to make sure that our language was appropriate for that audience. And so part of it is just being really sensitive to those issues. And so, for example, the mind trails that we're getting ready to launch, we have two rounds where we have a round of testing with expert users and clinicians, and then we have a round of testing with anxious pilots, and they're going through it scenario by scenario to let us know anything that seems like it's not going to be accessible, not going to be clear and not work, because that issue is a really critical one. And for me, it's partly an empirical one in the sense of we're going to collect data and see what's working well and what's not working well. And we can assess, we actually ask questions about people's educational background in the studies, so we can see if, in fact, people of different educational backgrounds don't do as well in these programs. And that will be a lesson to us that we need to modify them. So it's an absolutely critical issue. We've got to be thinking about making the materials work for the people who need them. So thank you for raising it. Sure. Hi. Um, one of the things I, uh, you know, over life, you, you learn, learn that uh, often perception has much greater impact than reality, perceived value. 
Uh, one of the, the perceptions of mental health industry that has the, the greatest negative impact on it are these catastrophic uh, uh, murders, the, the theater murder, the, the uh, school murder, da-da-da. And so that's having a tremendous negative perceived impact on mental health industry by itself. And the perception a lot of people might have, I certainly have, is that maybe there's a little bit too much focus on privacy, political correctness, personal liabilities by the therapist, to, to see somebody that actually has a lot of, they even write up in their notes, you find out when it goes to trial, that they, they actually did recognize this person was a danger to society, but for whatever, you know, these other reasons, they ignored it, and it, it had catastrophic effect. When, when 30 people get killed, that's a pretty catastrophic effect. It's, it's a greater effect than somebody being upset about something. So sure. mm -hmm. the, one of the problems is a lot of mental health is dependent on self-management, the patient taking their meds. Well, a lot of people that have mental illness, they take their meds and then they think they're okay and they stop. Um, or they, they, the side effects, the things that you've mentioned. So I don't know how you can address this, but it's having tremendous catastrophic perceived negative impact on mental health. It's like every, people are starting to think, well, what's wrong with these people that are in mental health? Are they too sure. concerned about privacy and political correctness? Yeah, you're raising a very important issue, and clinicians face a challenge all the time in trying to think about balancing the need to provide confidentiality to their parent, to their patients, while also thinking about the need for protection. And so clinicians actually have a responsibility. We are mandated reporters in certain situations. So if we learn about child abuse, if we learn about abuse to elderly or disabled populations, and if we learn about imminent threat of harm to self or others, then we are actually obligated to report that and take steps when we think there's reasons that we're learning about something that could cause harm to somebody. That said, we are a young science. And we have to get better at being able to predict the kind of problems that you're talking about. Fortunately, the catastrophic events that you're describing happen very, very rarely. Even though it doesn't seem that way in the media, the number of people who are dying through hurting themselves is much, much greater than the number of people who are dying through something like a Columbine kind of an incident. So while the tricky part is that we're not yet great at predicting which individuals are actually going to do those kinds of events. And there are a lot of people doing research to try to figure out how can we try to identify those kind of low base rate events so that we can catch them earlier. So you're absolutely right that as a field we have to get better at doing that. But it is an enormous challenge because these events actually don't occur very frequently in the grand scheme of things. But it's an important issue you're pointing to. Got one right here. I noticed that you were using mindfulness meditation. What is the result and how often do you use it? Yeah, so we don't use it a whole ton in our work, but a number of other labs have been doing it with some nice results. So they find, for example, that people who have gone through treatment for depression, and they've done pretty well in that treatment, but there's a risk of relapse. 
So somebody who's had a prior depressive episode is going to be at higher risk of having a subsequent depressive episode. And they've shown that mindfulness-based relapse prevention can actually be really, really helpful for these individuals. So when they do some of the mindfulness training, it seems to help them maintain their gains for a longer period of time and provide that extra level of protection. So we're testing right now in one of these variations that we're testing for the interpretation training, whether helping people do a little bit of mindfulness before doing the training will make a difference. The idea being that if you can be very present focused and start out with kind of a non-judgmental stance, it may make it easier to have the learning. So you know, we don't have the answer to that yet. That's one of the tests we're running right now, but we'll see if it turns out to be effective or not. But I like that there's more than one approach. There's never going to be just one approach that works for everybody. I noticed that when you show your bar graphs and whatnot, oh, sorry, not bar graphs, there was a consistent and actually fairly significant decline in the anxiety behaviors, thoughts, and feelings on the control groups. To what do you attribute that? Very nice. Yeah, so it's not totally consistent. The truth is across outcome measures, sometimes you see some change in the control group, sometimes you don't. Um, so in a lot of cases, it wasn't a significant change, but sometimes there was some change, and that's a really important observation that you're making. And it's part of why doing these tests is so important, because we know that things like just time and testing effects, all kinds of things, can lead people to see differences in results from one time point to another. So that's why it's so important that you have a control group and compare it to these other training groups to really test are the training groups really doing better? Are they doing more than that and having good effects? One reason, though, that um, we think that sometimes these control groups have been showing a result is actually something that's really interesting. So sometimes we have control groups where they just see these neutral materials, like the ones I showed you. But if you see studies in the literature, including a number of ours, the traditional control group had been seeing endings to these scenarios that half the time were positive and half the time were negative. So the idea was you wouldn't learn anything in particular about whether ambiguous things ended positively or negatively when you saw that, because it was half and half. It was kind of random. But we think what's actually happening when you do that is that it's not a truly what we would call an inert control. In other words, where it doesn't do anything. What's happening is you're still learning some flexible thinking. Because you're learning, ah, oh, sometimes things come out this way, sometimes things come out that way. And for us, it's not about positive thinking per se. It would actually be really maladaptive to walk around this world and constantly be thinking positive thoughts, right? When a bear is chasing you in the woods, be afraid. <laughs> Get out of the way. Avoidance is good. right? So it's not that any way of thinking or behaving is always good or bad. The key is flexibility. And so we think we actually made a mistake early on in what people were choosing as a control group because it was still doing some of the work of encouraging people to think flexibly. I think we've got time for about two more. I think that um, you were talking at a point that willingness to change, to change the way you think. And I think that's very important because if to be flexible, you have to be willing to change in certain occasions. And most of the situation is that they are not so willing to change. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting point that you're raising. So for those who couldn't hear, the question is, how important is it that somebody wants to change, is willing to change? 
And that's a really interesting issue. It's actually one of the things that attracts me to these kinds of computer-based training programs is that a lot of the learning seems to be happening implicitly, right? So you don't have to say, I'm going to tell you my deepest, most personal thoughts and then work on reappraising them in a new way to think about them. Instead, you just get a whole lot of practice in solving scenarios. It seems like a computer game that you're doing. And so it may actually help a little bit with that very issue. That's one of the reasons we're interested in it. That being said, I want to tweak what you said a little bit. So what I see is that a lot of people are ambivalent about making change. They would love to feel less anxious. So it's not that people walk around and they say to me, gosh, I love feeling anxious. This is the best feeling in the world. Let's hang on to this. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that it is scary to think about changing your behavior. It is scary to think about changing the way you've always done things. And so people naturally have ambivalence about doing that. Because things like avoidance help in the short term, even if they make it so much worse in the long term. So I really think it makes perfect sense that people would have some ambivalence about dealing with this stuff. And so we work with them to try to manage that and, and see it as a very natural process because all of us have unhealthy coping behaviors. Any human being has things we do because it kind of works for us in the short term, even if it's not such a good thing in the long term. And so it's not that people don't want to lose their anxiety. They just might not want to take all the steps that it'll take to get there. Final question. All right, we've got one last question right here. Um, Ma'am, uh, on a societal level, how would you go about using these procedures and these programs to counter um, those, what, what would you say, those uh, appeals that are made on a, on a broad basis to confirm or deny prejudices in, that, that exist? Among, among the broad, among a broad population, because I'm worried about, since you already said in the early in the, how the percentage of people who actually are afflicted in some degree or another with this, these types of uh, phobias or biases, how do you go about on a, on a broad, le broad level or uh, countering attempts to uh, appeal to biases and confirm prejudices. Let me make sure I'm understanding your question. Are you asking me about outside of the mental health arena, how yeah. we might use these programs to help with things like race biases? Yes, exactly. What gender I'm, bias, things like that. Oh, yes, exactly. What I, and, and religious biases and other yeah. things. Yeah, so Project Implicit Mental Health is actually a sister site to a larger site called Project Implicit, where people can go and do measures of implicit associations tied to all different kinds of social groups. So it has measures of race bias, religious bias, age bias, gender bias, all kinds of different uh, domains and reflecting different groups that have been marginalized in one way or another. And there's actually lots and lots of interventions that people are trying to change how people think about these different um, biased ways of thinking because you're absolutely right to make that analogy that prejudice also can in part be reflecting a habit of thinking 
right? So we all have different habits of thinking, and those may apply to a social group. It may apply to a way of thinking that's tied to mental health. And so the idea that with practice, we can shift our ways of thinking is something that's relevant across all of these different domains. And for me, is a really hopeful thing, because it shows that we are not stuck or doomed to think and respond in a different way. We're actually stay as little sponges throughout our lives, always ready to learn and take in new information. And we can, you can, you know, you can actually teach an old dog new tricks. We, we can shift some of these things. So whether it be in the domain of prejudice or in the domain of mental health, there's a lot that we can potentially do. Uh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, I want to thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. You all have a great day.